0: Hello and welcome to episode 205 of the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth Paradin, historian and deputy director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum here at Camp Shelby. And with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Toady, former skipper of the fast attack submarine USS Indianapolis, commodore of Submarine Squadron 3 in Pearl Harbor, and many other assignments. How are you this fine morning, Bill? I'm
1: doing great in this fine Florida morning, Seth. How are you doing in Mississippi? <laughs> Doing pretty good. Yeah, the weather is actually quite beautiful for February.
0: Mm-hmm. It's uh, almost spring-like, so that's, a, oh, that's always great. a nice change, yeah. Mm. Well, uh, guys, this week we're going to take a bit of a step back, and by back, I mean back to Guadalcanal specifically, and review an area of the campaign that we purposely moved over when we were going through the campaign. Moved over it mainly because of timing on the part of our guests for that season, and not because we deemed it insignificant, quite the contrary. And as a matter of fact, great many of you viewers and listeners have asked Where is this topic? Why haven't you discussed it? Well, we're going to talk about it right now. This topic is arguably the most important aspect of the campaign for Guadalcanal itself. It's the reason that the Japanese kept throwing men, ships, and aircraft into the meat grinder. It's the reason that the U.S. kept feeding men and materiel into that same meat grinder. Hell, it's the reason we invaded Guadalcanal in the first place. That reason, of course, was the airfield, dubbed Henderson, by the Marines who took it and helped complete it called the unsinkable aircraft carrier by the Japanese who continually tried to sink it, called home by the hundreds of men who flew from it, many of which became legends of the highest order. Henderson fuel is home to a motley crew of men and their aircraft. Men of the Army Air Forces, Marine Corps aviators, and Orphan tail hookers flew from an equally motley crew of aircraft from Henderson. B-17s, SBDs, TBFs, Wildcats, Aero Cobras, and many, many more the motley crew that flew from henderson and later fighter one all compositely took the name of the islands bequeathed code name cactus together all who flew from henderson from august through the end of the campaign in february were known as the cactus air force so bill this has been a topic that a lot of people have said when's it coming well it's here it's yeah. uh you know we we bounced around it and we talked about it now almost every episode we talked about the airfield or some relation to it but but there were a lot of guys that flew from Cactus, and and Cactus was born of, you know, from the the Guadalcanal the campaign, and it truly is and was the main reason that we were there, and the Japanese kept throwing meat grind, uh people into the meat grinder. But you know, there's a little bit of a misconception about the formation of the Cactus Air Force and how it came to be. You know, a lot of people claim that you know we should have had aircraft there the first day.
1: But that's just not how it was laid out. When we invaded, you'll remember that there was a small contingent of Japanese soldiers and a bunch of Korean slaves. Uh, History books often like to call them laborers, but let's call them what they were. They were slaves still trying to build the airfield. And this was precisely what Admiral King was all agitated about, because this airfield was going to really interrupt our plans for communication with Australia. Now, I think John Parshall corrected the misperception that the Japanese ever intended to invade Australia. Right. In fact, they probably wouldn't have been able to, and that was never one of their operational plans. However, taking Guadalcanal put a big wall in between us and our Australian allies, and that's why King knew that we had to do something about it.
0: And he wanted to, you know, he wanted to put aircraft on Henderson that day. And as you said perfectly, you know, it not happen. I mean, they still we're building the dang thing when 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 we landed, and 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 so much so that it took almost three weeks to to finish mm-hmm. the, the to 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 get the airfield to where we could land aircraft. So, you know. From August 7th, 1942 until August 20th, 1942, the airfield was was unusable because it was still being constructed. And, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until the 20th that the first aircraft arrived. Um,
1: the first well, That's aircraft- the irony Seth, because mm-hmm. it was an administrative landing. Right. It was not an opposed landing. Right. So the Marines kind of waited ashore, expecting, you know, expecting to get in contact with the enemy. But there wasn't much enemy there to begin with for them to get in contact with. So the lack of air cover didn't become an issue until the Japanese said, holy cow, we need to do something about this. And then they showed up in a big way. Indeed. And to the point where when the Marines finally did arrive, when the, I'm sorry, when the first Marine aircraft mm-hmm. finally did arrive, and, and you'll cover that in a second, how they, how they got there, you know, the, the, the Marines ashore in Guadalcanal had been beat up so badly by the Japanese aviation elements mm-hmm. and sea elements mm-hmm. that General Vandergriff almost kissed the first Marine pilot to climb out of his aircraft landing on Henderson Field, as it was called, after the Marine aviator lost his life at Midway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, And he said, thank God you guys have come. You know, mm-hmm. the tears streaming down his eyes is is the report that we got, isn't yeah. it, Seth? It's one hundred percent
0: true. And you know, to Vandergriff's, you know, you know to to your point, is that he, Vandergriff knew, and the Marines, the, the Mud Marines, that uh, you know, the gyrenes and the Foxholes knew that they to survive they needed air cover, and this is something that they were not getting um, with the frequency that was needed uh, uh, until this yeah, point. The carriers, that's right. right. And the carriers mm-hmm. were there here and there and in and out, but they weren't there all the time. The Marines felt like they needed consistent. exactly, and the Marines felt like they needed something to be able to throw at the Japanese to either a deflect a landing, b you know attack ground troops, or c you know fight off enemy air raids that were occurring constantly. And to your point, you know the Marines finally brought some aircraft to Henderson Field on August twentieth. The first group of aircraft to land on Henderson were indeed Marine aircraft. Uh, They'd been launched from the little bitty escort carrier USS Long Island, which was the first escort carrier, CVE 1. CVE 1, right? (laughs) Little bitty old thing. And uh, MAG 23, Marine Air Group 23, were the people that came ashore there on Guadalcanal.
1: And it was. Aside, Seth, Marine Air Group 23 still exists in the form of Marine, I think it's training. Air Training Group 23 now, but they're a training air group, and it's great that that um, legacy that was established at Guadalcanal still continues today.
0: And what a legacy it was. It It, it really mm-hmm. was. The first aircraft that came to Guadalcanal, it wasn't, you know, a little... Pittance of aircraft. the The first flight was were nineteen F four F Wildcats under a VMF two twenty three, under the ca- command of a Captain John L Smith. We'll hear a lot about Captain Smith here in just a few minutes. Good old John L. John L. <laughs> John L. <laughs> That's right. And then twelve SBDs of VMSB two thirty two under the command of Major Richard Mangrum. Um, this mm. first echelon would soon be joined within a few days, actually uh, ten days later, as to be exact, of uh, from VMF two twenty four. These are more F four F Wildcats. Cats under the command of a gentleman named Robert Gaylor, who you will also hear about. Mm -hmm. And the remaining aircraft of VMSB-232 also followed in their first
1: echelon from Mangrum's squadron. So this this gave... This this is a great thing about the Navy Marine Corps team, Seth, because then as now, the Navy and Marines were flying the same kind of carrier airplanes, sometimes slightly different variants, but, you know, except for the vertical F-35s, the Marines uh, you know, F thirty uh, five B Bravos the Marines fly today. They're flying airplanes that could land on carriers, and then as now, occasionally a Marine squadron will be get to, will be deployed off of an aircraft carrier. So that provides a lot of interoperability between the Navy and Marine Corps that did not exist with the Army aircraft, who also showed up eventually in this very motley crew that we're going to talk about.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's a beautiful point, and that's actually something that I didn't even think about until you just said that. But as we will see throughout this episode, you know, one of the huge factors in the Cactus Air Force was the constant maintenance, repair, Mm -hmm. and, you know, flyability of a lot of these airplanes. And because of the fact, to your excellent point, that USN and USMC were flying the same birds, there
1: was a lot of Mm -hmm parts swapping and thievery going <laughs> on. And and frankly, if you got it, you got a new surplus of Navy pilots and Marine airplanes, yeah. and the, Navy pilot, the Wildcat pilots from the Navy can jump into that Marine Wildcat and fly it. Yep. And that wasn't true with an Aerocobra Cobra or right. another Army Air Forces airplane that might have been there as well. Right, and speaking of Aero Cobras,
0: uh, in between the Marine arrivals on the 22nd of August were uh, five U.S. Army Air Force's P-400 Air Cobras. Now, this is a export version of the P-39 Air Cobra. It's essentially the same bird. Um, and we'll talk about the Air Cobras later. They they tried to yeah. do battle with the Zeros and failed, but they found a niche that was uh, very, very valuable later on in the campaign.
1: These, era, these Air Cobra aircraft, I think the people who liked them best were the Soviets that mm-hmm. we, I mean, the Brits bought a bunch, the, the Royal Air Force bought a bunch, Didn't like them and exported them to the Soviet Union in World War II. And the Soviets figured out how to use them and came to love them. But yeah, in here in Guadalcanal, they found a kind of a niche that Mm -hmm. um, we'll talk about.
0: Yep, we'll we'll definitely get there. Um, And not to be outdone, (laughs) Bill's beloved United States Navy uh, was forced to send 11 SBDs from the USS Enterprise to Cactus during the Battle of uh, Eastern Solomon. So, this is all occurring within a few days. So, you got to remember, you know, uh, August 20th is when the first aircraft land, August 21st, 22nd is the Battle of the Teneru Mm -hmm. River. And then just a few days after that is a battle of the Eastern Solomon's. And we're gonna all tie all yeah. this up in a bow here in just a And
1: remind me Seth, the Enterprise was damaged during these East, Eastern Solomons, right? Exactly. And exactly. that's why these airplanes were freed to, to come and land. In fact, I think they had to the land or they, yeah. they, they 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 were diverted right. to Guadalcanal because the enterprise was damaged. So, you know, imagine being a carrier pilot. You think you're going home to the boat. And you uh, nope. see, not vector to you know landed cactus vector two seven zero and landed cactus and where's my stuff? It's on the ship, and you know I got nothing but my flight suit, and here yeah. I am landing on an island and saying to Marines, "Hey, you guys got some chow?" And yeah. you know it's it's got to be a weird experience to get diverted like that. So, something
0: that that stuck with those flight 300 is the guys that we're talking about here and obviously there's a lot more navy aircraft that did land on cactus but the ones that bill is referring to for the listener slash viewers sake is, is enterprises flight 300 and we'll talk about them in just a few but yeah it was a culture shock <laughs> to say the least to say the least so when the f 4 fs and the sbds of mag 23 hit the ground you know land safely i should say they were welcomed as saviors you know the marines on the ground finally had the air cover that they so desired because they knew that, and and, and granted, this is literally 24 hours before uh, Ichiki hits you know two one there on the on the Ilu Creek, that they knew that a Japanese counterattack was coming. And they they desperately desired that air cover to mm. to support them in any way, shape, or form that they could get it. And that aircraft, that air cover support arrived in the nick of time. So let's talk about the first combat of some of these guys. It literally occurred 24 hours or less, really, after they landed. They land on August 20th. August 21st is their first combat for a lot of these guys. And it's their first combat period. No. Yeah. Yeah. So the morning after arriving on shore, Major uh, John L. Smith uh, lifted off a cactus with three other Wildcats and tangled with a flight of
1: six zeros. This is the the following morning. Um, In the fight, Smith claims tojo time then in the noon mm-hmm. time daily scrap this was the morning it was the this. it
0: was the morning because they were preparing so so yes and no so they knew that that tojo time was you know noon-ish you know they say you know it wasn't always noon but it was midday yeah and and what they mm-hmm. were doing is they were being you know they had learned from the marines that had been ashore for three weeks and hey look you know around midday you know stuff at the Defecation hits ventilation here, so you might want to have some combat air patrol up there. So that's exactly what they did. Smith is aloft um, when he attacks this flight of zeros coming in. Um, Notably, two F-4Fs were heavily damaged but managed to return to Cactus, eventually being deemed total losses. So this is the Marines. This is Smith's people's first tangle with the Japanese. He claims a kill, and we'll get to John L. here in in depth in just a couple minutes, but but, um, he claims a kill that actually – did not occur. Uh, that aircraft did limp home. But in the first air to air scrap, the Marines did okay. You know, they did okay. Mm-hmm. They engaged a superior enemy force because a flight of zeros was six to the four uh, wildcats that were aloft. And um, they did damage and survived, but they would do better. I mean, this is their first meeting with the Japanese. They did drive the Japanese zeros off.
1: So they did succeed in that mission. Now, and John L. El- Have one or two other opportunities before his time. Just a few. (laughs) Just, just just a few.
0: So, now you got to keep in mind. Now, all this is going on in the same day, and and just for the listeners' sake, we're not going to go through every single action of the Cactus Air Force because Bill and I'd be here till Christmas talking about that. We're gonna we're gonna hit the highlights here. You know, Um, that same morning that John L. Smith receives his baptism of fire you know the marines are finishing off what's left of uh, ichiki's people on the tenoroo river um aircraft arose from henderson to attack what was left of ichiki's people that had been decimated by 2-1 the night morning attack we've covered that in depth with dave holland already um mm-hmm. the airport the air support provided did little to sway the battle the battle had already been decided but uh, you know, a lot of those P four hundred. I'm sorry, this is August twenty second. The the P four hundreds that landed that day got up and sprayed some of the some of the remnants of of uh, Ichiki's forces, kind of given a preemptive view of what these aerobars are actually going to do for the main part of the campaign. But the fact is, yeah. is that the aircraft that arose to strafe what was left of Ichiki's people, which they did, it didn't. Really, nothing to change the battle, but what it did do is boost that all-important United States Marine Corps morale. So,
1: absolutely, the Japanese. And there's that famous there. photo of all those Japanese soldiers dead at Teneru River, yep. also known as Alligator Creek. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's, the, those soldiers probably were not victims of the air strafing attacks because they would. The soldiers actually looked fairly. And this is going to sound odd to say it this way. Almost like they're sleeping mm-hmm. and and if they had been victims of the uh, strafing, they would have been cut up pretty bad, so oh, yeah, um, yeah the, the, there's a very devastating for the Japanese and a great morale booster for those Marines who w- weren't sure whether they were going to survive because let's we keep pounding on this point, but it's really important to understand nobody had ever beaten the Japanese before this and You know, ground fighting, I mean, you you could go back to Malay Peninsula and, and, you know, events that had happened down Southeast Asia. And so these Marines were very unsure of themselves. The outcome of this was not um, well, you know, developed. And so having those airplanes there to help was absolutely um, huge. Yeah, it was huge. It was huge.
0: A couple of days later, on August 24th, this is what uh, happens during the battle. Of, this is the Battle of Eastern Solomons that, again, we've already covered in another episode. Things get pretty hot on Cactus at this time on August 24th. Uh, as I said, due to the experience that was passed on to these pilots by the guys on the ground, they knew that midday was generally what is called Tojo time. That's when the Japanese came in to, at the very least, strafe Henderson Field and the surrounding marine emplacements or worse, drop bombs and, and and you know, from a relatively high altitude. So that being said, um, a combat air patrol was aloft at that time, and it was also a known thing that there was a fleet action going on in the waters out past Guadalcanal. This is, of course, the, the third carrier battle in 1942, again, the Battle of Eastern Solomons. So alerts Midway, were issued. A, a Coral Sea, Eastern Solomons. Yep. Um, yep. yep. Okay. And then Santa Cruz in October. But um, because of that, the pilots uh, aboard Cactus were aware they were aloft. Not all of them by any means, but there was a combat air patrol aloft expecting that the Japanese would come and attack the airfield with their carrier aircraft, or at the very least, come and bomb the aircraft or airfield at their normal noon time, noonish time. So, with that being said, there were four F4Fs aloft over Sea Lark Channel, working as combat air patrol. Uh, Twelve more F4Fs from VMF 223 and the p 400s from the 67th Fighter Squadron were waiting on Henderson for orders to launch. They were just basically just kind of sitting there waiting. Among those aloft was a battle-experienced lieutenant from Hubbard, Oregon, by the name of Marion. Carl. This guy is a legend. He was a legend then. He's a legend now. Uh, Carl had been – he's combat experienced, which is a rarity among the marine aviators aboard Cactus. Now, John L. Smith got his baptism of fire on the 21st of August, but really there were few and far between in terms of marine combat experience aviators that were cadre of these units. Carl had been one of the Marine Aviators aboard USS Saratoga when Saratoga was bound for Wake Island in December 1941 and Admiral Pye called for A uh, yeah, abort. Yeah. yeah. Abort mission. So he he didn't see any combat then, but he was aboard that carrier at that time. Well, as you know, as that carrier was being pulled away, that Marine Air Group was, or Marine Fire Squadron rather, was launched from Saratoga. And where did they land? Midway. Midway. Uh, yep. BMF-221 was deployed to the island of Midway, and they saw just, just a little bit of combat action on June 4th, 1942. Yeah. On June 4th, Carl received his baptism of fire, and the furball that occurred over and around the island as the Japanese strike groups attempted to put Midway's Midway Atoll's airstrip out of action, Carl tangled with at least four enemy fighters, shooting down one while damaging a further two. A few weeks later, his days with VMF-221 would end as he was reassigned to VMF-223 to to provide cadre. Now, one dogfight doesn't necessarily make a whole heck of a lot of combat experience, but when you have guys who have had zero dogfights, one (laughs) is better than zero. (laughs) (laughs) And that's exactly how the Corps looked at it. They needed people that had some sort of combat experience to take over these very green aviators and show them. The ropes, you know, teach them this is how you kill Japanese heroes
1: heroes was rare in these Mm -hmm. days. And, you know, there was a lot of folklore that the Marines were with and Navy pilots were dealing with about, you know, how how the right way to do. um, Was this before um, or after the weave was invented? I can't remember. I think this is after. Right.
0: Oh, as yeah. That we've, we've, yeah. That, right. Jimmy Thatcher developed that tactic, and they used that at Midway, and, and Carl was right. an advocate mm-hmm. of that tactic, right. as we shall see. Um, mm-hmm. Back to August 24th, back to Eastern Solomon's time frame. Uh, while on patrol, Carl sighted the expected incoming Japanese force over large Channel and informed Cactus. He radioed him, and said, here they come. Uh, the awaiting uh, F4Fs and P400s are launched, and they're – bound to meet the Japanese. Uh by 1430, I'm sorry, uh Carl led his F4Fs in a high side run as he 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 sees the Japanese, he's climbing for altitude. The tactic at the time and you'll hear this over and over again in this episode is that the F4F Wildcats could not outmaneuver the Japanese, they could not outclimb the exactly. Yeah. But what they could do is outdive them because the Wildcat was a stubby little heavy little bird and it would fall like a rock. Through a Japanese formation. So the tactic more often than not was for American aircraft, and actually any fighter, but especially Wildcats, to dive on the enemy formation. And that's exactly what Carl does here. He leads his F4Fs in a high side run on what he initially deemed to be six Kate torpedo bombers. You know, they weren't, they weren't Kates, they were zeros. Mm. Um they turned out to be from the carrier Ryuo. And the one flash through the formation, Carl splashes one zero. He pulls up and climbs for altitude. Heading for a flight of incoming Betty bombers that were escorted by more A six M zero fighters, so he slashes he, his way through this formation, and of course instantly the Japanese fighters you know scatter like when you kick over an anthill. They're all over the place, and everybody it's a dogfight now. Carl is not worried about that. He knows that the zeros are going to cause damage, but he's also fully aware that the bombers what they're what they're there to do. The bombers are there to bomb his airfield and kill Marines. So he makes a beeline for these Betty Bombers. By 1430, Carl had gained enough altitude to make another diving pass, this time on the aforementioned Betty Bombers. In his pass, Carl set the left wing of fire on the outward Betty on the left side of the formation, slicing through the formation before the Japanese could react. Again, falling on them like a rock and peeling away before they ever even knew what hit him. His, you know, this is the, the brick tactic, right? Ball <laughs> like a brick. And, yeah. <laughs> and then shoot him, him on the way down. That's it. That's it. As he's blowing through the formation a second time, the Zeros are keenly aware (laughs) that there are F4Fs all over them. He pulls up just short of the waves, I mean, to the point where he's probably kicking up spray with the prop on that Wildcat. Uh, He peels left and notices a Zero is on the tail of one of his squadron mates. Um, He shoves the throttle forward, gives chase, flushing the Zero off, but not downing him. Now, remember, this is only the second day of combat for this Dude, here, you know, mm-hmm. not finished. Carl gains altitude and spotted an incoming flight of Kate torpedo bombers. This time, what he sees are actually Kate torpedo bombers. No, they're not carrying torpedoes, they're carrying bombs, but they're coming here to bomb the airfield. Uh, again, attacking from above and behind, Carl dove through the formation, splashing one victim, pulled up, went around, blasted another one, bringing his tally to the for the day to four confirmed kills. Plus now one that there. makes him an ace, right? Because exactly. he had one over midway. Exactly. Yeah. So this makes five kills. He is officially the United States Marine Corps' first fighter ace of World War II. This is a big deal, you know. This a, it's a big yeah. deal for any fighter pilot to become an ace. But I mean, four kills in his second combat mission really—that's a big deal. You know? And this is something that Marion Carl and and his comrades would repeatedly do you know they kind of grab fighters in bunches and 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 eliminate them in bunches here and there just two days later carl was returning to cactus after a bomber escort mission when while in the landing pattern his aircraft was jumped by an enemy zero uh raising his wheels and and in an f4f you got to remember too it's raising your wheels it's not like you know and like the later f 6 fs or the corsair you flip a switch and they come on you crank them crank them yeah. Yeah. yeah and if i remember correctly and i could be wrong uh, but I don't think I am. I think it's like 26 cranks yeah. to get And, and you're f- flying an airplane. Too, yes. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, like the old windows in your car where you crank them up and crank them down. But I mean, you know, you're raising landing craft or landing uh, gear on an aircraft. And at the same time, by the way, you're flying said aircraft. Oh, and you're tangling with the Japanese zero at the same time. So there's a lot going on in this dude's world right now. in <laughs> that little be cockpit.
1: You need yeah, more hands.
0: Uh, Need more hands for sure. You need some good hydraulics. One of the two, uh, pouring on the coal. Carl, Carl swooped low over Henderson Field, and if you recall, we talked about this, and this is a tactic that Carl probably learned from some of the survivors from his earlier squadron at Midway. There was a guy Midway. named, yeah, there was a guy named William V. Brooks who I knew, who also flew with Mary and Carl aboard uh, Cactus Two later. Uh, Brooks was attacked by several zeros at Midway while he was flying an F-2A Buffalo, and the only way he could get those people off his tail was to fly low over the Marine Corps anti-aircraft gunners to shoot the Japanese away, which he did. Hopefully they shoot the right people (laughs) flying over. Don't shoot the blue airplane. airplane. (laughs) Don't shoot the blue one. Shoot the green ones. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what Carl does here. He knows he doesn't have the speed or the or the altitude to outclimb, mm-hmm. and he's still raising his wheels, cranking them up like a demon. He passes right over the top of the Marine Army aircraft gunners who do that very thing. They start spraying, you know, all over the dang place, trying to shoot this Japanese airplane down, and it does kind of save Carl's bacon. As he gets his wheels up, he pours the coal all the way, throttle all the way to the firewall on the F4F, and tries to get out of the. Location as fast as he can, pulling up into a near vertical climb. And a vertical climb in an F4F is pretty serious. No. No. <laughs> yeah, that's, no. it's, it's not fast. No, it is not. It is not. As he's making this climb, the Japanese pilot who had attacked him sees him making this climb. And this guy, and we'll just say, we'll just call it ballsy because that's exactly what it is. Now, this same Japanese pilot had taken any aircraft fire, looks at this probably pretty soon about to stall F4F. It's starting to do one of these things in a vertical climb where it's shaking like a leaf because it doesn't have the power to get up to where he needs to be. The Japanese Zero pilot ignores the AAA, ignores the fact that Carl is clearly coming after him, reverses course, flips that Zero around, and makes a head-on pass right at Marion Carl. Not backing down, Carl pushes his Wildcat literally to the physical limits of its, ab- of its ability. And opens fire on this japanese as he slashes past him sprays the zero with 50 caliber sending it tumbling towards the beach engulfed in flame it's five kills
1: in two days or three days there's something else that's remarkable about this fifth kill though isn't mm-hmm. there yeah there is so
0: post-war analysis of the flight japanese flight rosters uh it, it, it's pretty much been Proven for a fact that the aircraft that Carl shoots down in this head on pass is Japanese 27 kill ace ace, uh, Junichi Sasai of the elite Tainan Air Group. Now, the Tainan Air Group were, they were a lot of the zero fighters that consistently engage Cactus Air Force. But this dude himself was a pretty, pretty bad individual. He, He was a hell of a pilot. You know, this is one of those elite Japanese naval aviators that we talked about, you know, ad nauseum that were just again chewed up in the meat grinder that is
1: guadalcanal he had 27 kills himself and if and if carl hadn't shot him down this day there's no doubt he would have had more oh he'd have had 28 because he just shot carl down oh well, yeah sure. but he would have continued this you know oh, yeah. unequaled i think at this point in the war um he was up there I don't, Yeah, yeah. i else?
0: don't yeah i don't know where he ranked in the in the you know mm. hierarchy of Japanese fighter races but he he was certainly in the top you know five at, at the very least mm. but he it, regardless of this the, the point that we're making here is this this is again it's not because Carl Schusten a Japanese ace, although that is significant accomplishment it's because of the fact that yet again the Japanese elite are being whittled down and the American green fighter pilots are becoming elite themselves over the next several weeks and this is cool. Uh, Marion Carl and his group CEO, John L. Smith, who we'll talk about in a minute, would engage in a friendly rivalry to see who would be the top gun of Cactus. By the time VMF-223 leaves Guadalcanal in October, Carl would be the United States' second-ranking ace with 16 and a half confirmed kills. Say that again? How many? One six point 16, five, and, 16 a and a half. Yeah. My 16
1: goodness. and a half.
0: And it's, and, and, and it's, you know, you look at some of the fighter races in, in Germany, like, you know, mm-hmm. Eric Hartman, 352 kills. Gunther Rall, who was a friend of mine, uh, you know, 275 confirmed kills. That's an ungodly amount of aircraft you shot down. Yeah. And you look at the Americans and you say, well, you know, it's not that, but 16 and a half kills in 1942 flying a Wildcat, that's a significant accomplishment. Yeah, you know, that's a big uh, deal. Especially when you're only mm-hmm. flying from the end of August to the middle of October. That's, a, you know, that's mm-hmm. pretty significant. Um, Carl would be, he would be awarded the Navy Cross for his actions. Uh, he's a charter member of the Cactus Air Force. Uh, he's one of the few high scoring marine aces who do not receive the Medal of Honor here. Why he doesn't do it or get it, I frankly, I don't know. I really don't. Because as I said, by the time he leaves Cactus, he's the second highest scoring ace, not at just the core, but in the United States, in the United States right. military with 16 and a half kills, uh, he would finish, no, the it, you know, right. yeah, yeah. finish the war with eighteen and a half. Yeah, he finished the war with eighteen and a half. So, mm. I, he's one of the few people that we're going to talk about today that that did not
1: get the the blue ribbon, and I frankly don't know why. No. Yes, yeah, Seth, I think at this point in the war they were still writing the rules on what would qualify for a medal of honor, and and um, as the rules evolved, and we're going to talk about that here later in this episode, the, I, the you know you can't say that the standard was lower, no. lowered. Um, but I think the standard was established. And it is very difficult to go back and say, you know what, we missed that guy yeah. because these rules weren't what they were when we decided on a navy cross for him. Yeah. So just medals were not upgraded in those days, and it's still very difficult to have it happen today. Yeah. But you know, at that point, you, you got what you got. And and you had to be happy with it. And of course, he would have probably said it doesn't matter to him. Yeah. And yeah. you know that's what those guys would have said. Yeah, um, absolutely. But it matters to history, and and I do believe it was a mistake that he did not receive the Medal of Honor for what he did because he was a, you know, he was blazing a trail on absolutely. how to do this against a very effective Japanese, you know, naval aviation force.
0: And that's 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 exactly right. And that's a very good way to put it. It was literally blazing, you know figuratively and literally blazing a trail. But you know, to your point, th- they were still learning how to do, yeah, the thatch weave was there, and that was a tactic that they used, and you know, the hit and run, the dive from the out, all that stuff that was all there. But I mean, these guys are, as you'll see, these guys are flying aircraft that are a lot of times were held together by, you know, spit and bubble gum. And
1: bailing wire yeah, <laughs> exactly. and prayers. wire prayers. You know what we call hundred mile an hour tape today didn't exist <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Very very true, but you know they they were they were trailblazers. They were charter members of the Cactus Air Force, and the guys who came later benefited from the experiences these dudes learned right now. So as I said, Marion Carl was a member of VMF two twenty three um, two twenty three was the first marine fighter unit ashore um they literally as we said they paved the way for the other groups that followed it over the course of several several weeks and months um they were always outnumbered and i do mean literally always outnumbered and they were flying the venerable but outclassed f4f wildcat mm-hmm. yet still 223 managed to rack up an impressive impressive victory tally uh, the pilots of 223 and their Army, Air Forces, and Navy brothers usually flew every single day. Every day. That's, incredible. that's a yeah. lot of flying, you know, and and, mm-hmm. and and that's not to be taken lightly. It's like, oh well, the pilots are flying airplanes, that's their job. Well, yeah, it is, but it's it's flying an airplane off a of Guadalcanal is not the same as flying something, you mm-hmm. know, off the Ticonderoga in 1945. Mm-hmm. It's a different beast. It is a different beast. Due to sheer exhaustion or malaria, they may have had a day off here or there. And by here or there, maybe like once every couple of weeks. But in general, they were expected to and did fly whenever they had to, usually in machines that were patched up, like we just said, with spit and bailing wire. And, you know, they were pieced together from the wreckage of other shot down F4Fs or SBDs, depending on what the situation, you know, was. From August 21st, the day of 223's initial tour on Cactus until September 11th, which is not when their tour ended, but just just a small snippet of time. The Japanese launched over 300 sorties against Guadalcanal, all aimed at Henderson Field and the newly constructed Fighter One. In that same period, August 21st through September 11th, VMF 223 claimed a total of 29 Zeros, 37 twin engine bombers, and 11 VALs and CATES. By the end of their tour in October, the Marines of VMF-223 would claim 111 enemy aircraft. Mm. Let that sink in for a second.
1: Yeah. That's, yeah. that's incredible. How many did they
0: lose? Uh, the, well, I'll get your numbers right here. <laughs> <laughs> their claims came at a high cost by October 9th. Only nine of the original guys that flew on the island were still alive and able to fly. Nine. Yeah. I mean, these guys were just knocking them down like bowling pins. Aircraft losses in aerial combat were high. 27 F-4Fs of both VMF-223 and 224 uh, were lost due to damage being shot down or mechanical failures. So, I mean, these guys were not only in a fight with the Japanese, they were in a fight with the elements and mechanical issues every single day. I didn't know any marine aviators that were... And disease. I didn't know any marine aviator that was ashore on Guadalcanal that didn't say that their aircraft were literally, you know, hulks by the time they were there for over a week. Mm -hmm. The main reason, and this is true, the main reason that VMF-223 was as successful as it was is due to the leadership of their brilliant, absolutely brilliant commanding officer, John L. Smith. He was born in Oklahoma. Smith was an ROTC graduate, which is a rarity in these days because he – wasn't an Academy graduate or anything like that. Like a lot of these cats were, he was, yeah. I mm-hmm. guess it would be called from, from the, he wasn't from the trade school. Yeah. So he was called John L and he was called John L. You know, there's a lot of famous John L's and S. John L Sullivan, John L this, John L. that. But John L Smith is the guy we're talking about right here. And, and his pilots called him John L or Smith or sir. Uh, he was kind of a abrasive personality. In other words, he didn't take anybody's crap, but the guys loved him like his pilots worshiped the ground that he walked on his the ground crews of VMF 223 literally did anything the man asked them to do not only because it was their job but because we've said this before good leadership inspires people to just do things for their for their superior officers and that's exactly what happens here um mm-hmm. he you know he got his first supposed kill on August 21st that we said that actually wasn't his first kill And after his – and this will give you just an example of the guy's personality. After his flight lands on the day he gets his – what's thought to be his first kill, instead of walking around going, "Ah, guys, I shot down a Japanese Zero today, he sits down and gives his people a lecture and berates them for about an hour as to what they did wrong and what they can Mm -hmm. do better to, A, take down more enemy, and, B, bring themselves back alive. And it's examples like this that make him beloved. You
1: know. Well, it was yeah, his intent was trying to keep them alive. And he yeah. didn't um he didn't polish in any way or underplay the danger that these Japanese airplanes and pilots represented. He talked honestly about the danger and, and about you know what they had to do to asymmetrically fight these guys so that they could prevail. He, he kind of, in a little way, way, reminds me of Mush Morton's mm-hmm. We Are Expendable speech. Yes. Um, yeah.
0: You know, but, yeah.
1: but his personality was very different from Mush Morton's where right. Right. Mush was a kind of a comical, almost comical character who liked to wrestle and joke around with his guys. John L. didn't come across that way at all in my reading. He He did not. He
0: did not. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a jerked or anything but he was a very stern commanding officer
1: mm-hmm.
0: however the one person that the, he did kind of crow with a little bit was Marion carl and they were but and Marion carl was his xo of course so so they those two worked you know literally hand in hand
1: but sometimes um, competition is good to get the
0: best out of you right yeah, and that, that's what um, that's what happens here you know it's yeah. what happens here so one thing about carl or uh john l is that you know Every fighter pilot wants to shoot down enemy fighter planes because that's why you're there, right? You know, mm. But he was keenly aware that the Japanese bombers, be they Bettys or the Nels or – Yeah, exactly. They were the biggest mm. threat. So he consistently told his people, these are the cats you need to go after. Obviously, don't run from a fight, but when you make your initial pass, you take out those bombers. And that's something that he just banged into the head mm. of these people day in and day out, day in and day out, strike from above, hit and run. Those were his tactics where you get in there, fire, shoot them down and get out, get more altitude, come around and do it again. Basically just loop it over and, and over repeat. Again. Yeah. Rinse yeah. and repeat. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's it. He, uh, you know, and, and the thing is, we've never really gone into any detail about the F4F Wildcat and we've kind of Bagged on it a little bit, not just in this episode, but in other episodes too. Because frankly, it was not—it it was nothing compared to Japanese Zero. Zero was king in the skies until yeah. the Corsair, and then later the. Off
1: maneuverability for survivability, exactly, and that only gets you so far.
0: It it does, but on the credit side, it gets you home, and that's the thing. Mm-hmm. That's the thing with the Wildcat that the guys who flew it, they absolutely. I mean, they were keenly aware that it wasn't as good as a zero, but it got them home. You know, it had the armor plate, it had self-sealing fuel tanks. Mm-hmm. Grumman was notorious for making extremely rugged aircraft. And this is obviously no exception here. So the Wildcats I mean,
1: eventually do get to Guadalcanal, but not for a while. Yeah, yet. They'd another better, Grumman airplane, later. right? Yeah, so and they learned a lot. Yeah, yeah. Probably the finest fighter aircraft of the Pacific War
0: was the was the Hellcat. Hellcat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Definitely the highest kill ratio, but from August 26th through August 30th, a four-day period, John L. dropped eight enemy aircraft, four Bettys and four zeros. On August 30th, and this is this is just cool, and I like we we like telling these personal stories because we know you guys like to hear them, and these are just they're just mm-hmm. awesome. These guys are just amazing. On August 30th, Smith and his wingman Red Kendrick were at 28,000 feet when Smith saw a flight of 22 zeros below him undeterred it's two dudes now undeterred by the enemy's superior numbers smith and kendrick slashed through the japanese force with smith taking one zero on his first pass as he pulled up to re-engage another zero appeared out of a cloud one quick burst from smith sent it flaming down so this is two zeros in the span of probably less than 30 seconds as smith clawed for altitude for another pass a zero came at him head on this was a typical japanese tactic That they would make head-on passes against American fighter aircraft, basically playing chicken until somebody moved. Mm -hmm. With both aircraft firing at each other, Smith's aim was better, setting the Japanese afire. Smith watched as the enemy pilot bailed out of a stricken aircraft with his head on fire. Mm -hmm. When the guy passed by him, he got out of the bird, and his head was afire. Mm -hmm. Low on fuel and ammunition, Smith headed home at this point. As he was descending towards Henderson, he noticed another Zero attempting to set up a run on a— a flock of american F-4Fs that were in the landing circle he slid in close less than 50 feet behind the zero set him afire and watches a zero plowed straight into the jungle below this is all in one day this is in the span of you know the first two kills were in probably 30
1: seconds 30 minutes beginning and oh yeah yeah Yeah, yeah. fuel limitations right exactly Mm -hmm.
0: exactly even though they're flying close to home i mean when they're dogfighting they're not you know coasting i mean these guys are they're pouring it to him. By September, mm-hmm. the friendly rivalry between John L. and Mary and Carl had Smith sitting at 12 kills and Carl sitting at 11. By the end of the mm-hmm. tour, John L. would take the title, uh, ending his run with 19 kills, uh, standing atop the heap as the highest scoring American ace at that time. So he was the king of the hill uh, when when uh, VMF 223 leaves uh, Guadalcanal And Carl
1: at 18.5, I think. Carl
0: had 18 and a half at the end of the war. At this time, he had 16 (laughs) and a half. 16 and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So by October, though, so you gotta remember they got they get here towards the end of August and they go all the way through the rest of August, all the way through September and all the way through October before they relieve. By October, John L was nearing the end of his physical and emotional tether. Mm -hmm. You know, he had seen a lot of his people go down. He'd seen a lot of the enemy go down. And that, even though that's his job, it's starting to weigh on the man.
1: Um, he yeah, has- when I think about this, I think about Gregory Peck in the movie Twelve O'clock High. Oh, where fantastic at the end, movie. there he's he's completely spent, and you know he tries to make another mission and he just can't, and mm-hmm. they kind of cart him off, and he's he's unconscious until he hears whether or not his uh, how many planes have returned from their daylight bombing run over mm-hmm. Europe, and and this this in my mind. This is John L. At this point in the war, yeah,
0: yeah, he's 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 pretty much done. He's pretty much spent. You know, he himself had gotten shot down too, and that's the thing with a lot of these Marine aviators. They had not all of them by any means, but a lot of them did, Marion Carl. You know, a lot of them did get shot down, and because of the friendly natives and and the the system that had been worked out within the Solomon Islands, they were able to get back to Guadalcanal. Well, John L. Smith is no different. The one time he got shot down, and I frankly forget the date of when it occurred as he was making his way back to now he was spotted and picked up by friendly natives but as he was making his way back to the the cove where they were going to basically you know get him out of there extricate him and bring him back to Guadalcanal, he passed the wrecks Mm -hmm. of two in two different locations of his fighter pilots Uh, and by the wrecks i mean like their crashed aircraft with their bodies still inside and for a fighter pilot that's something you don't uh, our fighter pilot uh, you know a squadron commander that's something you don't see you know when you see yeah. your men go down they're literally going down in flames but you don't see those often you don't see those dead young men you know as opposed to an infantry mm-hmm. commander that sees it all the time you know he mm-hmm. saw the bodies of his pilots that he knew very very well he trained these guys in the cockpits of their birds and that shook him up a little bit it really did
1: you know and, mm-hmm.
0: and, and I, I don't think you could you know, make an argument as to why it didn't shake him up. In a letter to his wife, and this is, I'm going to read this verbatim. In a letter to his wife, Smith let on that he had had enough. He goes, quote, Louise, darling, I haven't the least idea of what's going to happen to me in this squadron. Have lost the best I started out with. Lost one the same day I was shot down. I'd, I would have rather it been me instead of him. Hope I can see his family when I get back and tell them what a swell Marine he was. I know they'll be proud of him. He just received the distinguished flying cross. Really no justice in war or he certainly would have gotten through. I've gotten 18 of them so far and I'm getting sick of seeing them burn and blow up in my face. Several times I've had to duck to get out of the debris. And an, an admiral pinned the Navy cross on me the other morning. And I'm proud to get it except that they think that this is good payment for seeing young pilots who are sharing my tent go down in flames day after day. I don't mind saying that I am sick of the whole mess. All my love to you,
1: John. And that admiral that pinned that Navy cross on him, his name was Nimitz, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Not yeah. just some admiral, but the
0: admiral. The admiral. Yeah. But But yeah, it, and and there's footage of that, in which I'll show in here in this, well, I'll show it now. Uh, that mm-hmm. that is, is John L. and Bob Gaylor and Mary and Carl, all with their Navy crosses on, having been pinned mm-hmm. directly by admiral chester w Nemitz. so the squadrons are relieved in october while back home in the united states uh john l smith is awarded the medal of honor by roosevelt personally for his leadership and actions while a member of the cactus air force and for john l he could have cared less that that ribbon with the right. blue stars was on i mean he took it as a great personal honor but he didn't care you know he
1: he he received it for representing his team exactly Yeah, it's the only way you can make peace with something like that.
0: Absolutely, and
1: and, you know, from that representative of the broader team when you receive it, absolutely, and
0: and from that letter that he wrote to his wife, you can tell that his heart lay with his men, and that's the sign of an absolutely fantastic, fantastic leader, fantastic. So, you know, we talked about. Some of the aspects of flying from Henderson, Air uh, from Henderson Field and almost at Air Force Base, but Henderson Field. And one of the big things, one of the big issues uh, was the maintenance war. And and that's exactly what it is, is it was a maintenance war, a constant daily struggle to keep Mm. these birds in the air. I mean, these you got to remember, these things were being flown sometimes two, three, four times a day. You know, sometimes for as little as thirty minutes, sometimes for as long as three or four hours. It just depended on the flight and the mission or whatever the case may be. But you know, I mean, on a good day, that that's going to wear out an airplane pretty fast. On an aircraft carrier, that's going to wear out a bird real fast. Where parts are relatively plentiful, where you can generally get a you know blower if you need one for your for your air, airplane. But on Guadalcanal, especially from September through October, that
1: wasn't always the case, was it, Bill? Huh. No, you know they had, to, uh, they f- did fly a few parts in by air, but most of these were brought in by by ships. So you realize you're going to need some, you know, whatever it is, you know, new propeller to replace a dinged up propeller. It's going to be days, if not weeks, before you get it. And so other, you try to anticipate and put your order in early because you know you, you, what parts you're running out of faster than others. But still, there's there's a delay time, so you end up taking damaged aircraft that have become hangar queens without the hangars, <laughs> <Right. laughs> and to scavenge from the hangar queens uh, to keep what airplanes you can keep running running. And the the mixture of air, navy marine airplanes, you know, you were able to scavenge navy to use on a marine airplane, but the army air force's airplanes were a separate entity entirely yeah. and almost none of those parts were usable by the Navy or Marine Corps. And so mm-hmm. they had to get their parts in generally from Australia. Right. And so it's, you know, different supply routes managed by different chains of command. Mm-hmm. And it was tough. Yeah, it, it really was.
0: And, you know, the, the beautiful thing about it is and we talked about this on an episode with Dave Holland, uh, is that, you know, inter-service rivalries, are always there. But a lot of times, especially here on Guadalcanal, that was thrown out the door. I'm not saying that you know snide comments well, weren't made. It helps there there. that
1: there was no bars for people to get in bar fights over their <laughs> services. That's probably but, very true. Yeah, <laughs> but you're right. Everybody cooperated. This was a model yeah. of joint warfare before nobody anybody knew what that word meant.
0: Absolutely. You know, marine ground crews, Navy ground crews, Army Air Forces ground crews all work together to get these birds in the air. So you do have mechanics who are used to working on P four hundreds sitting there turning wrenches on a Dauntless because they knew that they hey, if that bird gets up in the air, that's a better chance for me to get home. If it stays on the ground, that's a better chance for me to go home in a pine box. So, you know, they were aware that that getting those airplanes up in the air was the Utmost yeah. priority. And and to the point where you had talked about it earlier, Bill, you know, referring to hangar queens, these guys scavenged every part that was available, you know, and made do with things that weren't necessarily even supposed to go on that airplane just to be able to get it to go. So, you know, the unsung
1: heroes of the Cactus Air Force, frankly, were the ground crews because without them, the pilots yeah. can't get in the air. But even without the combat damage, the jungle itself yeah. was enough to destroy these airplanes. In some cases, you know, the carrier airplanes had really hard rubber tires mm-hmm. that um, that were designed for landing on an aircraft carrier. They were absolutely the worst kind of tire to use in the mud. Mm-hmm. And so planes would skid off the mud runway and, you know, get damaged that way. It was, it, you know, every way you can imagine, there was rot. There was all kinds of things. Constant rain mm-hmm. causing corrosion. There was a horrific place to try to maintain combat aircraft absolutely and you know just to give the
0: fewer listener just a a little peek so despite the fact that the inter-service rivalries were put to the wayside and army pilots are working on marine aircraft marine air or ground crews are working on army you know what i'm saying everybody's you know working together to get these things airborne that was still barely enough by september 11th Just before Edson's Ridge, VMF-223 had 13 pilots and only seven Wildcats to fly. VMF-224 wasn't in much better shape. They had 14 pilots and only 10 Wildcats to fly. And of the mentioned 17 F4Fs, only 12 were truly flyable. The rest were, as you said, Bill, hangar queens without the hangar. So, Mm. you know, it was a constant fight. And that's not even considering the fact that the Japanese were shelling, which we're going to get to that in just a second. Fuel was also an issue, not necessarily the availability of fuel because that was usually on hand i don't ever recall hearing or reading that American aircraft couldn't get airborne because of lack of fuel. It was just
1: the simple task of filling it up. you know there I were a roll r- of fifty five gallon yeah. barrels <laughs> from the waterfront all the way up to the airfield, or, yeah because it'd be until so they had trucks and things like that to and then they had a hand crank fuel. Into the airplanes for much of the um, Guadalcanal campaign. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and it's, it sounds like an
0: insignificant thing, but when a process that to refuel a F4F is, you know, should generally take, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes and it takes four hours you know that 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 puts a heavy burden on everybody there and it's just it's just you know we're piling it on to show that it wasn't just guys flying in the air that were making those you know spectacular headlines without the people on the ground servicing those birds those cats never would have gotten in the air to make those headlines exactly so before september the second uh the third when the third defense battalion installed an enormous SCR-270B radar system next to the Pagoda on Henderson Field, the only way that the United States Marines and Navy and Army Air Force's pilot could get any kind of warning that a Japanese strike was inbound was due to the Coast Watchers. And these Mm -hmm. guys were bad to the bone, man. These guys were like Robinson Crusoe, you know, times 10. You know, they really were. Mm -hmm. Most, Most of these guys were Brits or Australians, you know, who are New Zealanders, who are all very, very familiar with the territory. And I got a list of plenty some of these civilians. names. Civilians, yeah, yeah. There were, yeah, yeah there were plenty of civilians, yeah. Mm-hmm. And there were, there were, there were also.
1: Go ahead. Now they they hoped to hear the airplanes before they saw them, mm-hmm. but they needed to see them to really know which way they were going. Exactly. And then, of course, they need to alert um, the folks on Guadalcanal that there was an inbound formation. Whether it was airborne or seaborne, and, and, and they just more of the same. The support infrastructure ashore on Guadalcanal and ashore on every one of the supporting islands was incredibly important. Mm-hmm.
0: These guys, some of these cats, were as far away as 400 miles on Bougainville, and they were radioing yeah. their 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 reports in, being like you said, you know, flight of airplanes or. Uh, Lead of destroyers, whatever the case may be, guys like Lieutenant W.J. Reed, Petty Officer Paul Mason, Major Donald Kennedy, Sergeant Jeffrey Cooper, Ashton Rhodes, Lieutenant Donald McFarlane, all these and many, 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 many more risk their lives every single day to get their information out. The Japanese were keenly aware that they were on these islands and they had patrols mm-hmm. out looking for them every day, hunting them down with dogs radio and Radio direction else.
1: finders trying yep. to catch their radio reports. And these guys, they had to live, you know, like commandos. Yeah. And many of them were not commandos. No. Um, just in very, very primitive conditions, fighting disease, just like everybody else mm-hmm. without the medical infrastructure necessary to, you know, to really fight the disease. Right. And, and and without these
0: guys, you know, it would have been a whole different story aboard Henderson Field and Cactus Air Force would have had a hell of a lot rougher life than they already did. And so the Coast Watchers, it's another group of people that don't get a lot of uh, recognition when it comes to the Guadalcanal or the Solomons campaign, period. And they were right. invaluable, absolutely invaluable. So losses in combat and mechanical losses put a massive strain on the Cactus Air Force, as we said. By September, due to attrition, the Cactus Air Force, Cactus Air Force only had 64 available aircraft to fly. And that includes B-17s, PBYs, F-4Fs, SBDs, and a handful of remaining Army Air Force's P-400s. You know, Almost daily, and that wasn't every day, but almost daily Japanese bombing raids further reduced that number. Naval shelling from Japanese destroyers... Heavy cruisers and light cruisers, and we'll get to the battleships in a second, also reduced that number, but not by as many as popular history would tell us. You know, it's thought that every single time the Japanese came down, they'd shell the island and that, you know, a dozen aircraft were destroyed or something. That's really not the case. It it only happened. I mean, it happened a lot, but it but huge losses in terms of aircraft due to naval shelling really only happened two or three times, right?
1: Yeah, because it was random. I mean, there was no real targeting. Um, They could shell the airfield, but whether they would hit the the very spot that an airplane was parked was basically a luck of the draw. So it's not that they didn't do damage; they did, but you know, it wasn't. It it was more psychological than it had you know impact in destroying airplanes. Absolutely, Uh, zero destroyed more of the friendly airplanes than the naval shelling did. But the naval shelling was relentless and mm-hmm. just really struck fear in everybody ashore when it was happening.
0: Yep. but there were two times where, and we've talked about this with John, that you know, had the G- Imperial Navy just basically done it again. Henderson Field probably would not have been a problem, would not have been a thorn in their side anymore. Um, the one time... That the Cactus Air Force very nearly was wiped out, and I mean to an aircraft, was the Mm. night of the bombardment. The bombardment, October 13th. Exactly. Congo and Haruna came down the slot and fired their 14-inch rifles for an hour and a half and threw like 970 14-inch shells at Henderson Field for, you know, we've already gotten into that. But it was a a Mm. lot of shooting. 32. Of the 39 SBDs that were on Henderson were destroyed. All of the TBFs aboard uh, Cactus were destroyed, and at least 10 more were damaged. The fighters, which were now parked at Fighter One, fared better, although 18 out of the 42 F4Fs were destroyed, and four P100s, as well as two P39s. So the vast majority, more than half, of the inventory aboard Cactus, aboard Henderson Field, were. Wiped out and just that one shelling by the Japanese battleships. That's why I say had they done it for a couple more nights, it would have been. Yeah,
1: 100 percent. It took us a while to. Replace those aircraft, didn't yes,
0: it? Yes, it did. It did, and it, indeed. Uh, and, and, you know, not resting on their laurels there, the Japanese, on another attack by the cruisers Maya and Miyoko. These are heavy cruisers with 8-inch shells. They fired over 1,500 rounds of 8-inch shell fire, destroying a 1, further 1,500 rounds. 1, rounds. I mean, that's like rain. You know, that, that's mm-hmm. serious. They destroyed a further 23 Dauntlesses six Wildcats, eight TBFs, and four more P-400s. This specific attack left Cactus with only 34 airplanes, nine of which, nine, were F-4Fs.
1: So So the fighter, uh, fighter one fared worse this time than he did the first time. But yeah, if it was rain, it was killer rain. Big time, big time. So,
0: I mean, while the to your point, the shellings were more psychological than anything else, there were those two times where the Japanese got they were very, very accurate in their shelling, and frankly, sometimes they were very lucky because all this was being done at night. But you know, I mean, Cactus took the a lick. It
1: wasn't good enough to to realize how effective those two nights had been. Exactly. And you know, they like you said, if they had continued as events extended, those events, um, it might have gone very differently for us.
0: Very, very well could have. You know, if they'd have poured the coal on with the battleships for a couple more nights. I don't think Henderson survives. That's just my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, if they come in, we talked about this with John. You know, why didn't they send you in? Mm-hmm. Who knows? But but if they had come down the slot again and just poured it into them, uh, I think we're having a different conversation right now. I really do. Mm-hmm. So while the F-4Fs were the primary defenders of Cactus, they were not the primary
1: offensive capability of Cactus, were they? Strike aircraft. No, the, the SBDs… Um, mm-hmm. You know, were, did what they did in Midway and everywhere else. They were effective when we had them with the trained, with the talented pilots and the targets, you know, and, and the right circumstances. Those were the airplanes, I think. You know, we talk about the invasion being stopped and you know, to the extent it was, you know, re- resupply, Japanese resupply being stopped and things like that. These dive bombers were very effective in that regard. They were worth their weight in gold,
0: and and while they, you know, the the venerable SBD, as we like to call it, my personal favorite airplane of the war, because it's just cool, you know, it was the premier carrier killer of its time, and it and it was that's indisputable. But they're not hunting carriers off a off a Henderson field; they're hunting a slower target, which of course makes it even more accurate. The you know the the transport mm-hmm. fleet of the Imperial Navy, um, so. They served as scouts and traditional dive bombers, the the SBDs at Cactus, and they they were worked to the bone. I mean, they worked these guys, you know, every single day. Richard Mangrum's VMSB 232 in their first 29 days ashore flew 28 missions. Um many of those missions were ground support, especially after Edson's Ridge in September and anti-shipping strikes. Um you know as we said they were already a deadly bird against warships but they were even more, the dauntless they were even more deadly against troop transports and slower moving vessels yeah. and i mean they paid their free
1: remember those destroyers that resorted mm-hmm. to dragging barges and dragging oil drums and kind of slingshotting them into yeah. the northern the northwestern end of guadalcanal as resupply efforts i mean those destroyers couldn't kick it at flank speed and without losing their cargoes so they were kind of constrained as well and became easier targets for the SPDs
0: the SPDs were so successful and we'll talk about this in a second that the Japanese were forced to change their resupply tactics because of the SPDs and that this is a fact so you know we earlier we talked about flight 300 from enterprise um just to to set the record straight in august following eastern solomons when to your point, Enterprise was damaged heavily. Uh, Flight 300 was already in, well, that's not what they were. They were called Flight 300 lately. Regardless, they're in the air at this time, unable to land on Enterprise is when they get told, you guys got to go land on Cactus because the big E can't have you right now. Culture mm-hmm. shock of the worst kind for these carrier yeah. pilots who are used to sleeping in a nice warm bed with clean sheets. Here they are sleeping <laughs> in a mud hole or at okay. best a cot. You know, yeah. on Henderson Field with their sidearms strapped to their waist because
1: mm. of potential Japanese They're infiltration. They not properly equipped to be ashore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's the way it was.
0: Nope. So, attacking the transports without air cover, uh, the marauding SBDs wreaked absolute havoc on the Japanese following um, Eastern Solomons. Now, if you were to recall, you know, Every almost every major Japanese troop resupply mission accompanied a naval battle of some sorts, be it Mm -hmm. carrier battle or surface battle and what have you. There was usually a troop transport convoy involved in there somewhere, and this is no different. Uh, Mangrum's SPDs and the SPDs from Flight 300 from Enterprise um, are compelled to attack Tanaka, this is Admiral Rezo Tanaka, who's in command of the Japanese resupply force all day long. And they hunt these people down. Now, they don't sink every transport ship. They don't sink every troop resupply ship in Tanaka's convoy. But the consistent air attacks that are launched from Henderson Field, Mangrum's people and Enterprise people, compel Tanaka compel Tanaka to turn his fleet around. And this is the first time that henderson field aircraft alone force the japanese to turn around a resupply convoy and it would not be the last yeah without carrier craft support right right yeah well that what carriers yeah exactly so i mean this is this is everything that that attacked these guys were flying off the off the ground off mm-hmm. you know off to shore um the navy and marine sbds and navy tv navy tbfs that are accompanying them were vital in the role of attacking incoming japanese transports that were destined to deliver troops and supplies to the japanese men ashore while not every convoy was hit and that's you know true not every convoy is going to be hit and not every ship is going to be hit by any means a great many were so much so that the japanese resorted to night tactics this to your point bill this there started flinging guys ashore and destroyers and you know and admittedly the destroyers escorted the the, some of these transports in at night but such was the fear of the aircraft that flew from henderson field as part of cactus air force that the japanese completely flipped their resupply schedule around to where they only tried to bring people in at night because they were absolutely petrified of american air power flying from guadalcanal Mm -hmm. so if that's not a (laughs) <laughs> Ringer of success. <laughs> I frankly don't know what is.
1: No, it's a Sun Tzu tactic, right? Use your strength against their weakness. You know, Klaus Littien would say the logistics supply chain for the Japanese ashore was a tactical center of gravity, not a strategic one, but a tactical one. And if you can ne- neuter that, then you're going to defeat them eventually in a war of attrition. And that's what we were doing with the SPDs. Mm-hmm.
0: PBFs played a role, too, but but it was mostly the daunt lie that were flying from Henderson Field that were you know, laying the licks on the Japanese there. However, we mm-hmm. mentioned earlier the Army Air Forces. God bless them. You know, 67th Fighter Squadron, there were B-17s involved in, in, in some of these actions, too. They're flying this old raggedy bird, the P-400 Air Cobra, which initially they'd bring this thing up in the air and they'd try to tangle with Japanese Zeros. And they would summarily be slaughtered by the Japanese Zeros because the Air Cobra was a not a good high altitude fighter, it was significantly affected by the humid air in the South Pacific. It just wasn't built for that kind of fighting. However, what the Army Air Forces pilots figured out pretty quickly what it was very suitable for, and what the Soviets also used it for too by the way, was uh ground support so these things not only did they carry you know machine guns, they carried a twenty millimeter cannon right through the prop spinner on these Beasts of an airplane, they're kind of a weird looking thing, but they're really cool and yeah. And the Army Air Forces pilots learned pretty quick that that they were very adept at attacking ground targets, and this is shown heavily after the battle for um uh, Edson's Ridge in September and again Henderson Field in October, where it's mostly not all, but mostly Army Air Forces fighter planes that get up and just strafe. The bejesus out of what's left Mm. of the Japanese is just straggling out of the jungle away from American positions. So they played a huge role in eliminating a lot more of those threats that were, you know, pointing those claws right at
1: the Marines surrounding that airfield. Now, this is classic close air support and Mm -hmm. uh, the Army aircraft that could be conducting close air support of mostly Marine ground troops was, uh, again, I I said it before, uh, it was – A wonderful example of joint warfare before anybody knew what that meant. And, you know, they were very effective.
0: A lot of these ground support tactics that the Marines and the Navy learned here on Guadalcanal, actually some of the earliest ground support tactics were pioneered by some of these Army Air Force's fighter pilots. They weren't the only ones, obviously. But, you know, these guys, like we just said, they they shared ideas, they shared thoughts. And the combined knowledge of all these people aboard this island doing these things further educated people that came after them in the tactics of ground support or what what have you and it it's mm-hmm. you know call it the classroom for a reason so you know we talked about the ja- about the japanese we talked about the the cactus air force attacking troop transports yeah, and, but they did get a licky or actually quite a few on japanese men of war Specifically, one morning, you know, we talked about the bar room brawl, Friday, the 13th, 14th battle, first naval battle of Guadalcanal, that, you know, San Francisco and her consorts shot the life out of the Japanese battleship
1: Hiei, but she was still afloat the next morning. And and you remember John Marshall saying that it was such a melee that there will never be a track chart constructed right. of the first naval battle of Guadalcanal. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> The
0: next morning, though, that battleship that San Francisco and her sisters and friends and pals shot up, it's still afloat, but just barely, isn't it, Bill? Who? Yeah. Cactus, Cactus Air Force gets a hold of her.
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful opportunity for the Cactus Air Force. But it wasn't – even though A was damaged, it wasn't like she was out of the fight because <laughs> she still had – you know, even though she wasn't maneuvering very quickly – she still had a whole bunch of anti-aircraft weapons that she could bring to bear as these SPDs began their attacks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They they start they start laying into her at about six o'clock in the morning, six fifty. 615 in the morning the, the SPDs get up when the sun comes up and they start laying in the heA he she's close man she's less than 40 miles away from Henderson field I mean you know it's a quick flight in and a quick flight out for these guys so they start mm-hmm. harassing her all morning long by
1: 11 30. because of that it's pretty high you can you can mm-hmm. take off unload all your uh, your bombs and you know your dive bombing attack go back land reload take off go back and uh you know i think there were several some pilots made more than one run oh, on yeah. the HIA that morning absolutely
0: absolutely uh, guys made some of them two and three runs just that day alone on that battleship um mm-hmm. by 11 30 he has been hit by bombs dropped from b-17s
1: sbd in- we teased the b-17s about you know giving the helmsman a workout <laughs> never actually hitting anything but causing the ship to maneuver violently to avoid right. those bombs, the B-17s dropping. But today we don't tease the B-17s because they actually hit something. They did, and they they hit her a couple
0: times, as a matter of fact, with some pretty heavy ordnance. Um, mm-hmm. She's also hit by torpedo aircraft flying from, well, from USS Saratoga. They're flying from Hendersonville, but they're from USS Saratoga. Uh, the coup de grace. This is after
1: one of the many times that Saratoga is hit by a torpedo <laughs> yeah. out of action the so yeah. v t eights ashore and Guadalcanal,
0: and you know that's something we didn't mention, and I got it written mm-hmm. down somewhere is that it, it, th- there were a lot of aircraft carriers that that put people aboard Cactus, Enterprise Saratoga, mm-hmm. Hornet, and Wasp being you know well all of them mm-hmm. frankly, you know and all of them, and all of them <laughs> really all of them put people ashore at some point in the campaign at so. point. And this hmm. is a this is an example of that Saratoga's air group gets a hit. And the coup de grace enterprise finishes air, her uh, air group ten TBS. So this is VT ten. They put and the you,
1: in. Some more torpedoes work.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I don't have the exact number of how many TBF sorties were flown against EA, but I'd be willing to bet that probably half the torpedoes that were fired at or didn't do anything. Hmm. But there were some that did for sure. Um, Hiei, of course, becomes the first Japanese battleship sunk in the war, and she is really, she's sunk by aircraft from Cactus. Yes, she was debilitated by the Navy, but the Navy and the Corps aircraft flying from Anderson, they finish her off. Um, Absolutely. Later, the following day on November 14th, um, there's a troop transport convoy coming in. This is one of the last major Japanese reinforcements of Guadalcanal. And this is a huge thing because… You know, we talked about the barroom brawl and, of course, Admiral Lee and the Washington, you know, laying waste to Karishma. But there's still a troop transport convoy coming in to Guadalcanal to reinforce these guys come hell or high water. And now bereft of any real air cover, these troop transports are coming in and they are right pickings for cactus on mm-hmm. um Tanaka's troop convoy is attacked by the SBDs and TBFs, and F-4Fs do strafing runs too. Uh, the following day, uh, most of the ships are destroyed, or at the very least, they're hit, and they're beached. You know, Several of them are beached on the shore at Guadalcanal. They make it in, but several of them are beached, and there's some very famous footage and pictures of these ships just stuck right there on the shore. I think some of the wrecks are still there today,
1: or what's left of them. Yeah, they are. Years. In fact, as a scuba diver, one of them is a very popular dive site
0: mm-hmm. that
1: I almost went to dive on back about a decade ago, but didn't quite make it.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's 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 a permanent, well, for however long they'll stay there, that's a reminder yeah, of the Cactus the Air Force.
1: Pretty, yeah. pretty heavily these days, yeah. Yeah,
0: but that's a reminder of the Cactus Air Force's, uh, you know, Potency, if if you will, Mm -hmm. are those wrecks that are still on the beaches of Guadalcanal today that were attacked and hit on November 14th, 1942. So as we wrap it up, there's one more personality we have to talk about. And we absolutely have to talk about him because he was the man. And he had a pretty cool nickname. Uh, Swivel Neck Joe. Swivel Neck Joe. (laughs) (laughs) How did he get that nickname? We'll tell you in a minute. Back after this, but so following yeah. the relief of VMF 223 and 224 in October, a new a new Marine Fighter Squadron lands on Henderson Field and calls Cactus its home. Uh, Green in terms of combat experience, the squadron was supremely led by its CO and XO, a gentleman by the name the XO, a gentleman by the yes, name sir. of Joe Foss.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and this is an old man <laughs> by fighter pilot standards. He was well; he uh, was younger than John L. Right? He was. Yeah. He was. He. But John L. Was also the CEO uh, right. f- or, of, of of a different squadron. But but Foss yeah, is so twenty seven years old. He's four, an average of four years older than his next oldest pilots. So he he mm-hmm. fought very hard to get in the combat, even though he had his wings and he'd had his wings for quite some time. He. Um, he fought very hard to get into combat because people said, no, Look, you're too old. You don't need to be doing this. And you know, you need to be staying here and training, you know, other guys how to fight. He's adamant that he wanted to get out to the Pacific Theater. And he obviously does do that. As executive officer of the squadron, Foss normally led a flight of two four-plane divisions. So do the math here, Joe's flight would earn the nickname, quote, Foss's Flying Circus, which is very difficult to say very fast. Yeah, Yeah, it's a great nickname. And and you'll see why here in just a minute. Uh, That Foss's Flying Circus would eventually produce five aces and rack up over 60 kills, just those guys alone. In his first mission on October 13th, joe would claim the first kill of his career a zero overshot his wildcat in the gunnery run and joe sprayed him down um an instant later foss was jumped by three zeros and had his wildcat crippled spewing oil he barely made it back to fighter one he was infuriated at at, infuriated at this because he had target fixation you know this is his first kill Mm -hmm. shoots this airplane down. It's seen by everybody on Guadalcanal. And then he's
1: jumping. you're there. staring at that thing and you and you don't want to, you know, look anywhere else because you're afraid you're going to miss it. Exactly. So he's so irritated at himself when
0: he lands and his bird is crippled. And we already said before that, you know, there's really not much spare parts hanging around. He lands and he tells one of his pilots, he says, you can call me Swivel Neck Joe from now on. <laughs> so he wanted to make sure that never happened again
1: his head's gonna be on a swivel absolutely
0: absolutely so from then on all swivel neck practiced the tactics of ace fellow a or future fellow ace joe bauer joe bauer was another marine corps ace that was aboard cactus uh, or board henderson Guadalcanal cactus whatever you Mm -hmm. want to call it um and foss would crawl in so close to his to the enemy aircraft that the other pilots said quote the exec used to get so close that the Japs that he left had powder burns on his kills. The following day, I mean, that's close. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously he didn't leave powder burns, but that's still he got close. The following day, his wildcat, now repaired just barely though, coughed up oil and he took over he Joe took cover in a cloud. Uh, as he does, moments later, a zero flash past him on the tail of another F4F. At that instant joe opens fire and gets a second kill in two days two kills and two missions and this is kind of a thing for joe foss this is what happens to him throughout the rest of his time aboard cactus here on the morning of the 18th the south dakota native was flying an interception mission bound for a flight of betty bombers when the betty zero escort jumped joe foss's flight big mistake on the japanese part here uh climbing joe was able to get above the escort shooting down one zero hitting another driving off a third off of one of his men's tail Chasing the third Zero, Joe was able to get in a long burst that flamed the enemy uh, Zero's engine. Pulling up and right above the formation of Bettys below him, he watched as the bombers came under attack from uh, F-4Fs from VF-71. These are guys that flew off of the USS Wasp. Diving on the Bettys, Foss executed a beautiful diving run. Pulling up sharply as he dove through the formation and poured 50 caliber into the belly of one of the bombers, chalking up his third kill of the mission in the fifth of his career. In nine days at Cactus, nine days, Joe Foss had already become an ace in nine days. This is the, a harbinger of things to come when it comes to old swiveled neck here. Keeping the pace up on the 23rd, Joe shot down another four aircraft, four more zeros. And while that was excellent, his finest day would come only two days later. Flying combat air patrol over Henderson Field, Foss eyed a flight of zeros coming in to potentially strafe the field around 10 o'clock in the morning. Not wanting to let the enemy get close to the field, Foss fired from long range, something he generally did not do, and in the process, down two zeros but burned up all of his ammunition. Infuriated at his own, you know, basically he just expelled all of his ammunition trying to get to these people. He landed, refueled, rearmed, and returned to the air later that afternoon uh again he's flying as combat air patrol he spies another flight of zeros coming into henderson field to do another strafing run and pounces and two separate runs close in now joe liked to say that he would get so close he would wait till the enemy fighter would fill his windscreen before he would open fire he shot down another uh three japanese zeros bringing his total to five for the day And 13 days of flying from Cactus, Joe had shot down 14 enemy aircraft. That's just awesome. Yeah. This is, you know, record-setting. It is. It is. I mean,
1: that's marksmanship of the highest order. Absolutely. And, you know, it's not like the Japanese had run out of highly skilled pilots at this point of the war. That wouldn't happen until later in the war. Right. So – it's not like he was flying fly, flying against petty officers who just were in a terror You know, right. a few days before, right. these were good pilots in the world's best fighter aircraft. Yeah, and he's making them look like clowns. You know, he really
0: is. He's mm-hmm. making them look like clowns. The kills would come fast and furious over the next several weeks for Joe Foss, often in bunches. He wouldn't just. I mean, he would shoot down just one here and there, but more often than not, he'd get three, four at a time. By November, Joe's tally stood at 23 kills, making him the highest scoring American ace at that time. His score would have been higher, except for the fact in December, he contracted a very bad case of malaria that laid him down for almost a month. He returned to combat in January, notching another three kills, bringing his final tally to 26, matching Eddie Rickenbacker's World War I record, thus bestowing Joe Foss with the name ace of aces at that time now, that's at that time mm-hmm. of course his record is eclipsed by people like david mccampbell and and dick bong and people like that but at that time joe foss was the baddest dude wearing wings in the american armed services uh, he mm-hmm. would later be awarded the medal of honor by president roosevelt
1: and there's stand relative of- to the you know a very famous uh, black sheep squadron pappy boyington so um, – and that, that's – I'm glad you said horses. that
0: because that's something mm-hmm. we need to address because I guarantee you there are going to be people that are watching this going, he's not the top ace, that's Greg Bowington nah, nah. Hold your horses, so I'm going to lay it on you. There is some controversy among the clique of American fighter historians as to whether or not Joe is the Marine Corps' top ace or Greg Bowington is the Marine Corps' top ace. The American Fighter Races Association which is what most people give their credit to. Credits Joe with 26 and Pappy with 24. Why? Pappy shot down 22 aircraft flying F-4Fs and F-4Us. Most people probably don't know that he actually flew Wildcats before he flew Corsairs with VMF-122. And then later, of course, you know, VMF-214, the famous black sheep. He is credited with two kills as a member of the AVG. Pappy Boeington flew with the Flying Tigers uh, previous to his combat tours in the pacific with the marine corps and while pappy is certainly a legend and there is no denying that and we're definitely going to do an episode on the black sheep at some point joe Mm. is too and he's regarded by this historian and the american fighter aces association which i'm going to take their word as the top marine corps ace of the war with 26 kills what you got to understand is that some of the kills that pappy claimed and the avg which a lot of people say oh that puts him above joe foss they were ground kills so they weren't air to air therefore the american Mm -hmm. fighter races association does not and and this is an association run by american fighter races does not Mm -hmm. count that as an air to air kill because the aircraft were on the ground so if you chalk up pappy's ground kills yeah he had more but if you chalk up air to air kills which is what fighter races are made from Joe Foss takes the cake
1: at twenty six. Happy well, had the better TV show. <laughs> you, you can't not love the Black Sheep Squadron, right? So that's true.
0: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and you know, I I knew a lot of, and this isn't a Black Sheep episode, but you know, I knew a lot of Black Sheep pilots, and they all said they hated that show because now, well, while Pappy right. loved it,
1: well, it was kind of it was very, was it seventies? Yeah, yeah. I I think it was seventies. Yeah, it was very. Much a product of its time, mm-hmm. it survived today.
0: I remember Henry Bourgeois, who was a friend of mine from New Orleans, who was a an original black sheeper, and he flew mm-hmm. at Boeington in one twenty two. He he said he said, "Man, if we did all the drinking that those guys on that show did, there's no way yeah. on earth we did ever ever could have piloted an airplane." Right.
1: <laughs> so yeah, you're not you're not old enough to to remember that show. There's oh, I've, stuff, seen right? I've seen
0: it. I've seen it. <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen it. Okay. So you know, we could go on and on and on about people who mm-hmm. flew from Cactus, and I think we've kind of hit the highlights. You know, there's there's a, a a myriad of people that flew from this place that you know became legends or were already legends when they got there. You know, I mean,
1: Bill, the 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 Cactus Air Force produced how many medals of honor? Six, I you think, know, right and. And do some of that historian stuff, Maverick. Is that the most medals of honor for aviators in any campaign of the war? And I wouldn't necessarily say campaign, but any one location, yes. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and if you count yeah. Cactus Air Force as a, or not Cactus Air Force, Cactus
1: as a mm-hmm. base, which it was, mm-hmm. then or yeah, it was later Marine Corps Air Base later in the war, right? Or not right when it was fully properly equipped. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was a huge base by the time it was all said and done. But, but I mean,
0: you know, if you count that Henderson Field, Fighter One, Cactus as one base of operations, which again, it was. Yeah. Easily. That's the most medals of honor that flew off of one strip or strips, if you count both of them, at any one time for any one campaign. There was only one that was posthumous. That was Harold Bauer. Uh, The six medals of honor are John L. Smith, uh, Bob Gaylor. Joe Foss, Harold Barrow, as I said, was posthumous. Jeff DeBlanc and James Sweat. Jeff DeBlanc
1: from Louisiana, but uh,
0: yeah,
1: and James Sweat. And unfortunately, as we said earlier, it did not include Carl. Yeah, and it should have. And it so it should have really been seven. Agreed. Yeah. I,
0: I, you won't get a debate out of me on that one.
1: So, aircraft
0: flying from Cactus. This is you know this goes to the effectiveness of the of the mm-hmm. team that was on cactus airfield aircraft flying from cactus are credited with destroying 17 large enemy ships including hiei cruiser Kinugasa, one light cruiser three destroyers and 12 transports they damaged a further 18 vessels that we know of cactus air force lost 148 aircraft shot down and 94 airmen killed or missing with a further 177 evacuated for wounds or diseases Mm. and this this is Everybody who flew there. This isn't just the Marines that we talked about, or some of the Navy compatriots. This is guys that you know were in and out of there for a day or two. You know, flying from carriers, different Army Air Forces squadrons, PBY pilots. You know, I mean, it's 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 a myriad of guys that motley crew that we referred to. You know, they suffered heavy, heavy, heavy casualties between August and November 1942 when it was hot and heavy on Guadalcanal. 43 planes were destroyed on Henderson field and another 86 were lost operationally during that same period the U.S. Navy carrier supporting the Guadalcanal Guadalcanal campaign lost a total of 49 airplanes in combat and 72 destroyed on their ships and 184 operational losses so you'll see that was fairly similar in terms of losses estimates of total Japanese losses range as high as 900 aircraft and more than 2,400 aircrew members. Now these are not all shot down by guys who flew from Cactus Air Force. This is just a
1: composite Right. right. campaign. Yeah. and I would argue the 2,400 aircraft were or crew, were more valuable both from a moral standpoint and, but from a combat effectiveness standpoint than the 900 airplanes they lost because you could replace the airplanes, you were not going to replace those air crew.
0: 100%, 100%, and and you'll see that as the war drags on, as we you know continue to get into, we step back into 1942 here, but as we continue to go through 43, and especially in 1944, the quality of the Imperial Navy and Army, yeah. aviators are nothing
1: compared to what they and, are. and again, I want to pound the table on this point because arguments have been made by other nations that the Americans are too bleeding heart. In their desire to go after downed airmen, lost, you know, ground combat troops that have, you know, been injured behind the scenes. And I think history proves that the talent is uh, has been worth the effort to, to go after. Yeah. The Japanese famously did not try to recover downed airmen the way we did. And yeah. um thinking that you know it's their duty to die and not cause other ships to be to risk themselves and crew members to risk themselves going after them um you know that as much as anything contributed to the weakening and worsening of Japanese combat capability during the war, and it wasn't just bleeding hard Americans too soft uh, to to let their pilots go after they've been shot down it was actually improving combat effectiveness Absolutely. to go after those american warriors who might have otherwise been lost
0: 100%. I mean, you know, the proof is in the pudding when you got guys like Marion Carl and John L. Smith, who Jeff DeBlanc, who were shot down, Henry Bourgeois from the Black Sheep. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, this is later on in the campaign, but or later on in the war, but regardless, you know, guys who are mm-hmm. shot down and the Navy or the Marine Corps or sometimes both would go to extraordinary lengths to get these people back home, not just because they were brother officers, brother pilots, what have you, but because they knew that that valuable experience that these guys like Mary and Carl John Smith and different people Mm. had was not only going to, you know, pay dividends right there. It was going to pay dividends Mm. later. So, you know, Mm. you get guys like Mary and Carl who do wind up coming back to the war, but they're coming back as squadron CEOs now and they're teaching Mm. their, their young, you know, charges, how to kill Japanese in air to air combat. And, and, you know, it's, it, it it goes on and on and on that, the rescuing of American aviators, the, 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 the saving of those lives paid huge dividends later on, and you know, for the immediate present, but generally later on, and the Japanese to their detriment, you know, they're mm. a shell of themselves in 1943, really, but especially 44. Yeah. You know, they're just not they
1: can't compete. So from an administrative point of view, I would say as well, you know, Joe Foss, Marion Carl, and John L shot down so many airplanes. And I've never read this from a historical standpoint, it just comes to mind. That you start rethinking what should the definition of a combat ace be, right? Mm-hmm. Five combat kills. Is that threshold too low? <laughs> are, these guys shot down so many airplanes. Maybe we should raise the threshold of what we, and, if, and that doesn't begin to talk about what the Germans did. No, no. World so yeah. maybe we should raise the threshold where we consider somebody an ace. Maybe yeah. it's too low and you know but vietnam proved that five is a very difficult to attain mm-hmm. threshold it's even harder, so. even harder even harder attain.
0: but it was you a know, different war totally totally yeah. and you know the, the 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 effect the effectiveness of the guys that flew from cactus you know i don't you can't debate it in in terms of you know any less effective than it was because they were the reason that airfield they were the reason that we were there in the first place. They were Absolutely. the reason that we kept pouring, you know, treasure and lives into
1: holding that place. And it just did turn into that meat grinder. They were, they were the reason Japanese wanted it in the first place and and why we had to take it and hold it. And, and they proved its value. And they proved King right once yep. again.
0: Over and over um, and over again.
1: Yeah. Hey, before we wrap this episode up, Seth, there's something I want to say about, you know, some of the comments we've been reading recently. Sure. Now, again, we do read the comments and take them seriously. We add episodes when people um, suggest there's a topic that they want to hear more about. Like this one. Um, <laughs> we, we try to learn from the comments. And one of the comments that we read recently kind of um, hit a nerve with me a little bit. And it was about the uh when we i think it was the episode on on uh the battleships and you know the, the gunfight where one of our reader or listeners said that look there was a little bit of salty language that made me uncomfortable and and if you keep this up i'm gonna have to unsubscribe and we want to make it clear to listeners and viewers that we do not want you to unsubscribe mm-hmm. that is not what we're saying but i got to tell you as a 26 year navy veteran um this is not salty language that we use in this um these episodes we certainly don't go to the level where we have to declare them explicit content uh you know like a rap song or something like that we substantially water down the language that was actually used by these soldiers sailors airmen and marines um during the war. If you don't think that um language, heavy language was used during World War II, then you don't know much about World War II. It was now that is not to say that we're going to use it, um, you know, in, in inappropriate ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to continue to to make this show family friendly. And so we, um, you know, but we do at times have to reflect the language of the day. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's going to sound inappropriately from a political correctness point of view and i remember ching lee's radio message to uh, you know as he's trying to tell the pt boat to get out of the way mm-hmm. um during the battleship episode he used uh, you know um ching lee's- racial epithets ching yeah. in ways that we would not appreciate or tolerate in 2023 and language was used then that that you know, would make an R-rated movie today. We, we do try to water it down, but you know, we can't. Uh, we can't do it in a way that's going to make everybody happy. I guess right. that's what I'm trying to say here. And so we'll do what we can. We listen to you, but you know, there there are things that I think we need to be a little bit realistic in the way it was represented. So, uh, Seth, what do you think? Hundred percent agree. And you know, one of the
0: one of the comments, well, not one, but a great many of the comments that we received that I personally greatly appreciate is that, you know, the listeners uh, say that or watchers, whatever, say that, you know, when they watch or hear our episodes, it's like listening to a couple of guys sitting at a bar and and yeah. you know Which, which shoot we would do if breeze. we were in
1: the same town.
0: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, which would be great. And yeah. and 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 that's what we want to convey is that these are yeah I mean you know I mean you probably see me referring to notes throughout these episodes well yeah I mean I can't remember but everything in my head scripted. they're not scripted and, and they are conversational and sometimes you know yeah we're gonna throw things out here and there that you might not like and I'm sorry if that's the case but you know we're all adults
1: here and yeah,
0: yeah toughen up Buttercup. <laughs>
1: We do. We do want to make it family friendly because we sure. do. We all are unanimous in our belief that young people today—I hate to talk like a sixty-six-year-old, but that's what I am—don't know enough about World War II. And if this is a the way they can learn more, we're happy about that. Um, and so we we want people to listen and, and view. And Absolutely. so we'll do our best.
0: Yep. But just remember, guys, at the end of the day, this is a -A W.A.R. This is a war, and there's going to be some things that probably won't be pleasant to talk about or, in the case of some of the videos that that we produce, probably won't be pleasant to look at either. Keep that in mind. Uh, It's not all a bed of roses. So with that, we want to thank you very much for listening and or viewing our conversation. Please subscribe to the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast wherever you receive your podcast. Give us a rating and review. We do appreciate it. Also, if you want to see the video version of this and any of our other episodes, subscribe to our YouTube channel called the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. If you have a question or comment, send us an email at unauthorizedspecificpodcast at gmail.com. And and as far as the comments go, we are receiving, and I just want to say this, we've said in the past when we weren't receiving a ton of comments that we'll reply to everyone. We are very, very, very grateful that you guys are sending in a ton of comments. We love it. We do read them all. But it's almost mm-hmm. impossible for Bill and I to respond to all of them. So if you don't get a response, I do apologize. It's nothing personal. It's just we have day jobs, too. So keep that in yeah. mind. So, again, once again, I want to thank you very much. My name is Seth and Thanks for listening, Bill.
1: Yeah, this is Bill Toady. And hopefully we're going to bring a special guest for you all next week. And so until then, see we'll, you next week. We'll see you soon. All right, guys. Thanks.